This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a panel discussion with Nancy Guthrie, Ligon Duncan, Melissa Kruger, and Kevin DeYoung. This panel was originally held at TGC's 2021 National Conference. All of you who are all over the world who are joining in virtually with us for this conversation with a group of friends this afternoon on healthy complementarianism, a completely uncontroversial subject for the afternoon. Did you love that? I want to begin just by introducing my friends on the panel. I'll begin at the end down there. This is Kevin DeYoung. He is senior pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. He's also assistant uh, professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, Kevin also has a brand new book out on the topic we're talking about today, Men and Women in the Church. And get this subtitle, A Short biblical, practical introduction. That's all it is. Okay. (laughs) Kevin is a lover of history, having recently received his doctorate in early modern history with his research focused on the theology of John Witherspoon, a Scottish-American Presbyterian theologian who was a founding father of the United States. Kevin and his wife, Tricia, are the parents of nine children, at least that was today. Has it changed? I'm here, so I hope not. (laughs) Okay. He is a reader, a thinker, a blogger, a podcaster, a professor, a runner, a Jeopardy watcher, a Lucky Charms eater. Uh, next is my friend Melissa Kruger. She's the director of women's content at the Gospel Coalition. She has been a math teacher, a women's ministry leader in the local church. She is the wife of a seminary president. She's the mother of three children. 
and Melissa, I would say, is a multitasker, a beach lover, a faithful friend, a lifelong learner, and at least in my opinion, a consistent source of godly wisdom and insight. Thank you. Yeah. And then Ligon Duncan. Ligon Duncan is Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary, and it would actually take the rest of our 40 minutes we have together to list all of his academic credentials. Ligon is a husband. He is a dad of two adult children. Ligon is a churchman, he's an author, he's a teacher, he's a peacemaker, he's an encourager, he loves to sing, and he loves to laugh. And I love those, all of those things about you. I am Nancy Guthrie, and I am the moderator for our panel this afternoon. And as the four of us have considered all of the things that we could talk about this afternoon, uh, there is so much we would like to uh, cover if we could. Um, and if you have shown up today or if you've tuned in on the live stream hoping that we are going to add some logs to the fire of some of the controversies that are always simmering around this topic, I'm afraid we may disappoint you. Um, what we are hoping to focus on is what will be most helpful to men and women seeking to understand and faithfully live out what the scriptures teach. So that's our focus, and here's how we're going to begin. Let's begin by defining terms. Um, TGC's foundational documents, here's what they state, that in God's wise purposes, men and women are not simply interchangeable, but rather they complement each other in mutually enriching ways. So what I want to ask first, how, how would you expound on that perhaps to define briefly what we mean by complementarianism? Maybe we'll start at the end. Kevin? It's such a long word, isn't it? Every time I text it to my friends, I think, John Piper, why'd you come up with this word? <laughs> but it is, it, it, and I know some people don't like the word anymore and want a different word, but Nancy has uh, explained it well, and from the, the statement in the TGC document, that men and women complement, that is with an E, we also have to complement each other, we are very nice, <laughs> Melissa, but it means that we are fit each for each other, and this finds its most clearest expression in marriage, but it also has ramifications for how we relate to each other, certainly in the church, and even men and women throughout society. So you see from the very beginning that God created the world with these differentiated pairs. I don't know if you've seen this before, but in the whole warp and woof of the universe, God created these cosmic pairings that there's the sun and the moon, there's the, the sky and the land, there's heaven and earth, there's male and female. And part of the storyline of scripture is understanding how God, by his design and order, has created these complementary pairs, one each for the other, and that redemptive history is moving toward, in some sense, the reunion of these, that heaven comes down to earth. Wow. And isn't it fitting that before heaven comes down to earth in Revelation 21 and 22, Revelation 19 is what? It's a picture of marriage. 
It is the reunification. So when the man says in the garden that this is Isha, for she was taken out of Ish, woman taken out of man. The one flesh union is in a way a profound reunion that she was taken out of his side so that the two coming together are not an undifferentiated pair as if any group of friends could have done the same or to women or to men, but a man and a woman, and in particular the creation mandate there, and why most particularly the woman is a suitable helpmate for the man is because apart from that reunion, that one flesh expression of love and covenant commitment, the creation mandate could not be fulfilled, namely to be fruitful and to multiply. So from the very beginning in the garden, we see the complementary nature of men and women. And then we see various patterns and prescriptions throughout the Old and New Testament that help explain what this looks like. And that's some of what we're trying to talk about and how we can live that out in a healthy way. What would you add, Melissa? I think that was pretty good. All right. I think you did a really good job. (laughs) (laughs) I would just say, I mean, simply equal and worth and dignity and different in how we live that out in the world. Yeah, so just a really simple, but that was really good. The longer answer. What is one scriptural passage? We'll start with you, Ligon. What is one scriptural passage that is particularly, and maybe it's not a passage, maybe it's just something about the whole of the message of the Bible or a reality in the Bible that you find particularly compelling or convincing to the conviction that you've come to in regard to complementarianism? Certainly Genesis 1 and 2, and Kevin just talked about that, and you talked about that when we were chatting beforehand, very important for me, and so is 1 Timothy 3. But for me, I saw complementarianism before it became an issue for me to study in the Bible. So I'm not a person, a lot of my friends were not complementarian, and then they became complementarian. So Mark Dever at at, when he was at Duke and InterVarsity, kind of didn't have a position on this, maybe leaned egalitarian. And then when he heard an argument for egalitarianism at seminary from a professor that he deeply loved and respected, he said, I think I'm a complementarian. So, but I'm not one of those people. I didn't change my mind on this. So there wasn't a text. So for me, it was seeing my mother and my father live out this, what the Bible teaches and then seeing my pastor live this out, and then I go to the Bible and I go, oh, I've seen this before. I've, I've seen this in my mom and dad. My, my mom was a university professor, uh, more re- well-read than my dad, more theologically minded than my dad, but she, she had very obvious respect for him. He had very obvious love and care for her. It was a fruitful relationship. They helped one another. And so when I went to the Bible, I didn't see this battle between men and women. I saw two people that are in the fight for one another. And I'd seen that in my mom and dad. And same with my pastor. I I grew up in a time where we were leaving a liberal denomination that had ordained uh, female pastors, and my pastor was involved in saying, no, we need to be faithful to the scripture and have only qualified, ordained male elders. But when he spoke about women from the pulpit, he was unbelievably respectful. You could tell he loved women, and he loved the women of the Bible, so there was, no, there was not a hint of misogyny in his demeanor, in his language, in his teaching. And, and when I went to the Bible, I said, wow, that's how the Bible is. So I, I didn't get changed by a Bible text. I got, 
I saw the Bible being lived out, and then I said, oh, that's what the Bible teaches. How about you, Melissa? Yeah, for me, my story was almost flip-flop. So I was raised in an egalitarian church context. Um, and then it was really when I became in high school a Christian that I started studying the scriptures. And so when I saw 1 Timothy 2, you know, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. And when I saw Ephesians 5, wives submit to their husbands. You know, these are the passages that can make us all kind of squirm in our seats. But for me, I'll be, I'll be honest, it was just, this is what the scriptures say. And I fell in love with the scriptures. And I actually, it's just this, I mean, there are a lot harder things to be quite honest. And I don't say that condescendingly at all, but when Romans 12 tells me to prepare, to, you know, prepare my mind and to be a living sacrifice or to be content in all things, mm -hmm. there are lots of really hard things in scripture. So while this may fall in that category, I also said, I believe in this God that he is so good that he must only want good for me. And so I fell in love with the God of the scriptures. And so, yes, these scriptures were new to me um, in my context, but I really could just embrace them with joy. And, and I've seen them lived out over the course of my lifetime. And I've been very thankful to be in these contexts. But it just was what, for me, it was what the scripture said. Yeah. So. Is there a particular scripture or aspect of scripture for you, Kevin, that you find particularly compelling or convincing? Well, we were all talking beforehand over lunch, and, and I think you mentioned Nancy and so did Melissa, the example of Jesus. Jesus is not one to kowtow to the religious authorities of his day or to make sure that he's always palatable to the social norms and customs. So he teaches women. He calls them to sit at his feet. He touches them when they would have been ceremonially unclean. So you have Jesus who's not at all afraid to call the daughter, these daughters of Abraham and give them, uh, not give them, but recognize the dignity and worth that they have. And at the same time, he picks an all-male apostolic band, 12 men who are going to be leaders in the church. And Jesus is not one who's trying to curry favor with men. He has a deliberate reason why he's doing so. And he does so in a way that hopefully is leading to the flourishing of men and women. I mean, you certainly get the sense that the, the women around Jesus loved Jesus. And they saw someone who loved them in a way that could metaphorically and sometimes literally be felt. And so you see in Jesus, to, to, to be complementarian and people on, you know, this will light up Twitter, but to be complementarian in, a, in the healthy best way is to say we want to love as Jesus loved and we want to lead as Jesus would lead. And I think we see the example, yes, the, the, the term is new. We, we have to come up with different terms when there's different debates in the history of the church, but the sort of love for men and women, the sort of differentiation in the way in which they relate to one another, all of this has been around since literally the very beginning, and we see someone no less than Jesus who affirmed it and lived it out. And I think too, a lot of times people will try and make a distinction between Jesus and Paul on this. I'm struck more and more as I read Paul, what a wholesale plagiarist of Jesus he was. So just like Jesus will root his teaching on marriage in Genesis, in Genesis 2, where we were talking about, 
Um, so also Paul will root his teaching on men and women in Genesis and especially the creation of Adam and Eve. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, he will root it in what he calls the law or the Torah, meaning the five books of Moses, the inspired authoritative Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he, and he makes it very clear, my teaching is not coming from the culture, it's coming yes. from the word. And specifically, uh, Melissa mentioned the First Timothy passage, which is of course, you know, always at the heart of these discussions. And, and it seems as so much of the conversation about it is, was Paul speaking to a particular culture, cultural situation that day? But it seems so clear to me, in that passage, he actually says what he's basing that on. And he tells, and, and he refers to Genesis. And here in Genesis chapter 1, we have this uh, picture right from the beginning that here he's, is this great task that he uh, commissions Adam and Eve. They've, they're going to fill the earth. Well, that's going to require both of them, yeah. an incredible partnership yeah. from the very beginning that yeah. requires both. They're going to exercise dominion. That's going to require both of them. And so to me, complementary, complementarity is beautiful from yeah. the beginning that it's uh, this opportunity to uh, live out God's call in our lives that we need each other for. And to me, that's so beautiful. But the other thing I think that's obvious there in, in Genesis is that there is an order. There, there is an order um, in that, uh, you know, Adam is held responsible. Right. Clearly, when, when God comes, he right. is held responsible. And that's even... Um, punctuated for me when we get to Romans. Yeah. You get to Romans chapter 5, and the whole reason we need, we need the second Adam is because the first Adam failed to rightfully lead that first family to eat of the tree of life through obedience. But now the second Adam, as we are joined to him, is going to lead us into that tree of life and obedience. We often hear our egalitarian friends say about complementarians that perhaps we have uh, formed our convictions based on one or two isolated verses that are just disputed in terms of their application for today, while at the same time ignoring other parts of the Bible, especially perhaps the ones that show women in vital roles of leadership or prophesying or teaching. So how would you respond to that? Ligon, you want to go? Well, you know, I, you and I are both friends with Dan Doriani, and Dan is just outstanding on issues pertaining to complementarianism, but he wrote the section of the PCA study committee report on women in the life and ministry of the church, and he actually surveyed the whole range of activities that women are involved in doing in the Bible. It's a massive list of significant activities that are cataloged in the scriptures, and we celebrate those things. There's no desire to downplay those things. It's just those things are not set in opposition to what the Bible clearly says elsewhere. And, and by the way, the, the, the Bible does speak repeatedly to this issue, like maybe at least 11 times and 11 times is a lot of times to be counted a few times. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if, if the Lord said it once, it would be important enough. But 11 times is pretty clear. So um, I, I, think that, I, I think that's not a good argument. I think you have to actually take the text seriously. And, um, and, and frankly, more and more the tendency is to say you have to have a hermeneutic that takes you beyond the text to actually get to a non-complementarian position. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I would just go back even to what Kevin was saying. You know, when they say, oh, it's just those small passages. One, like you were saying, Nancy, First Timothy is rooted in Genesis, but also the example of Jesus, who I don't think, you know, he changed how women were treated in society. I mean, first century, second century, women came to Christianity in droves in part because it was completely in opposition to how they were treated elsewhere. And so he was revolutionary and he, he could have done whatever he wanted. I mean, he's God. And so he still chose 12 men to build his church upon, yeah. you know, in some sense. And so I, for me, I just see that these passages just go right hand in hand with the example of Jesus. Let's get a little bit more personal. Um, we heard from you, Ligon and Melissa, a little bit about your background. So let's start with you, Kevin, about this. Would you tell a, us a little bit about your personal life experience that has perhaps shaped how you've come to some of these convictions and uh, where you are with them? My mom is great. My wife is great. <laughs> Could you expound on that? Uh, I will briefly, I, w I will say, and I think this is somewhat where, where these questions are, are going as we've talked about it. It's really important when we talk about this, and assuming there's some basic theological, biblical agreement on what we're saying with people in this room and people watching, yet we, we sense, we're, we're suspicious of different dangers at times, and we want to lean against different potential pitfalls. And that's where it's really important to know our own experience, but not to theologize out of our own experience. So we start with the Bible. We want to interpret our experiences from the Bible as best as we can. So we're mindful of them, but we don't project whether it's, you know, as, as Ligon described, I, saw a, a godly Christian home and godly Christian marriage. I don't remember ever being explicitly taught these sort of things, but I certainly saw them lived out. I grew up in a, a mainline denomination, and about the time I was in high school or college, uh, maybe sooner than that, they started having women elders, and I'm not sure why I instinctively thought that was a bad idea. Maybe I'd picked up that from my parents, or maybe I had read enough. So I grew up with that. I have family members that I love who deeply disagree with me. Um, a, a woman in my family who's ordained. So I have people that I care for and are kind to me who, who differ very much on these issues. But it is important to realize that what I've seen are basically, I think, healthy complementarian models. Uh, I saw that growing up. I hope my kids are seeing that. I've been in churches where it seems to me that there's lots of godly, theologically-minded, energetic women who want to learn and study the Bible, women like Melissa Kruger who learn and teach and do those things, and yet completely are flourishing and, and happy to embrace what the Bible teaches. And so I need to be mindful that I think I've mainly had a good experience and other people haven't. And so that doesn't mean that if your experience has been bad and you're sitting here saying, okay, I kind of agree with the, the, the theology you're saying, but wait a minute, in my church, in my home, in my family, it's been so nasty, it's been so ugly, it's been so hurtful. And that really may be, 
And so someone who's had more of a positive experience needs to be mindful of that, listen to that, understand where your dangers and sensitivities may lie, and at the same time, not project all of that writ large, which is what we tend to do, especially with internet discourse. We assume everyone saying something is saying it right to me. You're always subtweeting me. And everything I'm saying to everyone else is coming out of whatever my own experience is. And if we could step back a little bit, basic common sense, be mindful of others, love as we would want to be loved, and let scripture interpret our experiences, we could at least have a better chance of having fruitful conversations. So Melissa, you talked about how you came to some of these complementarian convictions. Tell us from there on, what's been your experience of being a complementarian woman? Yeah, honestly, I mean, we talked about this earlier. I've had great men in my life. I mean, I'm really blessed. Um, I, I can remember my first PCA church I went to. Um, I felt like a daughter of that church. I felt loved. I can remember sitting in my college dorm room, and this is when you still had answering machines, and getting a message on my answering machine from my elder at my church, because I had become an associate member as a college student, saying, hey, I'm your elder. Um, I just want to know how I can pray for you this semester. Wow. You know, and I was like, oh, that's, and it was called the Church of the Good Shepherd, so they actually lived up to their name. It was a great, it was a great church, but to, to be a college student, you know, I'm clearly not the biggest tither in the body at this point, you know, because I have no money. Um, but just to be truly cared for by this pastor, and I, I still feel like, you know, he married my husband and me, um, just truly cared, like he was a father of the faith to me um, and taught me the Word of God. And then I met my husband, Mike, who has loved me in these ways as well. So I've gotten to see the beauty of it. I can, I can say I've seen hard things in it too. I've experienced that. I've experienced um, when it goes awry because we are humans trying to live out a good thing. And sinful humans will always make good things bad at certain points. So I've seen both. But, uh, but um, even as Kevin said, it really does get back to what does God's word say? And how can I interpret my experiences in light of that and still believe God's way is right and good, even when some of us have had bad experiences, and trust him and say, okay, well, this isn't right, so let me find a right expression of this. And I think that's okay to be on the lookout for. Beautifully said. Ligon, more do you want to add to your personal experience? Uh, just, just that, as I mentioned before, my mother was a university professor, and she, because she had grown up Baptist, she actually is a, gra a graduate of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, cataloged the church music library there when she was a music student at, uh, at Southern, taught at Furman University. So her, her stepping into Presbyterianism was a very deliberate process for her. It took, it took a while talking with our pastor before she, could, before she could get over a couple of hurdles. Interestingly, not the sovereignty of God or the doctrines of grace, but baptism and church government were a, that was a big deal. So she was a thinker. And when I had questions, I went to her to talk theology. And so I, I was blessed to, I was reared around strong, godly Christian woman that, women that took studying the Bible very seriously. 
And <clears throat> there was never this dichotomy that, you know, that men are the one that think, think about theology and women stay in the kitchen or something like this. It, I, had, I, had, I had, you know, good examples of thoughtful theological women in my family and in my church. And all my church experiences were, have been like that everywhere. Godly women in, in every congregation that I've been in that are respected and regarded, have a wonderful partnership with the pastors. And I want to totally agree what Kevin said. As a pastor, as you might imagine, I run into tons of people who have not had my experience. I mean, totally not my experience. So I am wide open. My ear is wide open to people that have not had that experience. But for it's it's always been a beautiful thing for me, not a, a you know a bad thing or a, or a tragedy. So we defined complementarianism. Maybe we could go a step further and say, what does healthy complementarian? actually look like? Because I think it's one thing to be biblically convinced of it at a level, this is, this is good and right and true, but for all of us, it's the living it out that maybe gets a little bit more challenging. And I think also, I think we want a complementarianism, don't we? That, uh, that the way we define it would have made sense in the first century when the New Testament was written, as much as it makes sense today in 2021, and that it makes sense in Africa and in Indonesia and South America and all of these other cultures as it would in America today, right? So what is healthy complementary? What are, what are the markers, some markers? Melissa, I'll start with you. Hmm. I think in the church, um, it means we are one body with many parts working together. So I always hope not to see just women serving over here and just men serving here, but that we are working together as a family. Um, and we're all pitching in and we're all helping and we know each other and we are, um, I, you know, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and daughters, we're a family. So we're cheering each other on in the race, like that we're sitting in small groups and we're saying, hey, I'm going to pray for that person you're trying to share the gospel with. And, you know, we're, we're doing this together. And I think one of my favorite passages on this is actually Romans 16. It really says a lot who Paul thinks in Romans 16. I mean, he has all these women. To be able to thank them, you have to know them. And he knew what they were doing. And I love how he talks about Rufus's mother, who has been a mother to him. You know, and he, so it's this familial way that he viewed these women and these men, and he's thanking them both. And so I just think that's this picture of healthy complementarianism, that it's, we're a family. And so we love each other and we support each other and we know each other. So we have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the church, which seems to reflect so much of what Jesus said, right? When he says, it's really not all about my blood relations, but who are my mothers and my brother and my sister? Yeah. Kevin, how about you? Healthy complementarianism. Well, at the risk of doing the, the third way, which I so often disdain, <laughs> and let me try to say it's, it's a complementarianism that isn't doesn't try to be everything, but doesn't say then it's nothing. Meaning, when God calls us to Christ, he calls us to be disciples. He calls us to follow Christ. He doesn't, first of all, call you to biblical manhood or biblical womanhood. It's a call yes. to repent of your sins, turn from sin, turn to Christ. So if we make the gospel a call, first of all, to biblical manhood and womanhood, 
we're missing what the gospel is. And we follow Christ as men and women. That's, we are embodied people. We have not just a gender assigned, we are given a gender by God, recognized by a doctor, given by God, and we are meant to then follow him. So there is, you know, so if my, one of my many sons or daughters says, what does it mean to be a, a man or a woman? I would say, first of all, it means to be a disciple of Christ. You're made in his image. The answers would be the same. But as I'm continuing to talk to them, there would be some things that are different. I think a healthy complementarianism then is not trying to say too much and it's not then trying to say too little. The danger with the too much is to make what would be, to Nancy's point, some of our cultural norms and to make them then become at the level of scripture. I don't, my, my wife says this has like a little hint of a pink line. I said, no, it's salmon. <laughs> so I, but you can't make a, a, a rule that, you know, a, a man can't wear a, a pink shirt. And yet, if we go into 1 Corinthians 11, it sure seems Paul is saying God gives us by nature manhood and womanhood, but we can't help but that culture is going to give us some of those clues. And some of those clues come with dress, with appearance, with demeanor, with posture, all of those. So we don't want to make absolute stereotypical statements. Here's what real men do. They got a Stetson hat and they like to fix cars and kill animals. I don't know how to do any of those things. <laughs> and yet I get concerned that sometimes complementarianism is everything. We're all just the same, except men have a list of a hundred things they can do. And women have a list of 98 things they can do. And Oh, we'll just try to massage that. There's, you know, there's two things you can't do. You can't be the leader in the home or, and you can't be the leader in the church. That is a complementarianism that I think is destined to fail. It's, it's, it's going to seem capricious. It's going to seem arbitrary. And so without adding all sorts of cultural stereotypes, is at, that's why I use the word of a, a posture. A posture is what, what are you leaning in towards? It's not an absolute rule. And so if we make complementarism just, the man can do a couple more things than the woman can do. That's, I don't think, gets the whole scope of scripture and how God made us to complement to one another. And as a good friend to me pointed out recently, a, a woman said, hey, you gotta talk about the things that women can do that men can't do, like being a mom, uh, as if God gives that gift, like, uh, giving birth, if God gives you that gift. So we don't want to present it as sort of apologetically just, eh, men can do a couple of things, it's in the fine print in the membership packet, you'll probably see it, but make sure you get your tithing envelopes. Um, that's not healthy, and neither is it a, a healthy complementarianism if it becomes the sine qua non, the without which nothing, the everything of our sort of gospel presentation. It's, part, it's, it's the way in which we're disciples of Christ. So I suppose if we're saying there's healthy complementarianism, then maybe it's obvious that perhaps there is also unhealthy complementarianism. And I wonder, I'll start with you, Ligon, 
Do you think that's the case? What, what do we do about it? Yes, there certainly is. Perhaps everybody in this room is very aware of how inappropriately these things often are talked about in the world of social media with bombast, bravado, chest-thumping, demeaning of other people. We never, ever want to give in to that. Our culture has been teaching us for 25 years that, that that's how you talk to one another. That's how you talk to one another about politics. That's how you talk to one another about culture. And it is in the church big time. And that is not the way conversation is depicted in the scripture as either between believers or with believers in the world. Uh, the, the, the world, no matter, our motto has to be in relation to the world, um, it does not matter how much you hate me, you can't make me stop loving you. And our, our conversation has to bear that out. So look, on this, if you go home and tell your children that there is such a thing as a male and a female, at some point in your life, you are going to be accused of hate speech. So it's a good thing in complementarianism, you get a little pre, uh, you get a little practice on that, okay? There are going to be people who hate you for being complementarians. Don't return that hate. Don't, don't return the demeaning speech, the suspicious attitudes. Speak in love. So that d definitely that kind of unloving speech that, you know, that everybody kind of gets in their room with their little tribe and they thump their chest and they make smart aleck remarks about women or other, that is not the way we want to talk, that's not the posture we want to have. Um, I also think that totally, apart, you know, social media is not reality. You know, the, the kinds of things we struggle with in families, in marriages, and in the local church often are miles away from the stuff that gets talked about all day long on social media. And there are real significant issues there too, and there are real unhealthy things there. But you do need to kind of get down into your local church because it's going to be different at every church. So for instance, I ministered for 17 years at a deep south church. You might assume that, that my women would have dealt, being in a traditional culture, that my women would have dealt with a lot of abusive, domineering husbands. Sadly, we did have some of that, and we had to discipline people for that. Ten to one, the women in my church complained about passive males. So if I'm talking about this at the level of Twitter, and I'm not getting down into my own congregation to see what the real issue is. I'm missing it. So there, yeah, there is all kinds of unhealthy stuff out there. We just have to make sure that we're working on the real unhealthy stuff that's right under our nose, not trying to fix the world, not trying to fix every church. It's going to be different in every church. And as a pastor, you need to know your sheep. You need to know their temptations. You need to know what the problem is in that local church. We, Nancy, you and I have talked about godly women who are fully committed to complementarianism, but don't feel like they're supported in their local congregations to be challenged to learn the scriptures, challenged to teach one another the scriptures, etc. So there are lots of different ways that this thing can go wrong. You've got to have your nose in your local church, in the life of your people, to know, because there are a million different ways to sin, but there's only one way to be biblical. So you've got to, you've got to know the different sides of the boat that you can fall off of. I think that you would probably reiterate some of what he said, Melissa. And, you know, my experience has been like yours. I've had such a positive experience, support from my pastors and elders, and in a good marriage where I am so supported, so grateful for that. But I think like all of us would say, we're not unaware 
uh, of uh, what many women, especially I think, experience under what gets called complementarianism. Let's call it so-called complementarianism. So Ligon was speaking about the reality in a church, and you've done a lot of, you and I both hear from a lot of women, right? And plus, you've been a women's ministry leader in the local church. So what would you add to that about what you have seen in regard to unhealthy complementarianism that's of concern? Yeah, I would actually say, I'll use myself as a case example. Um, I think I came into marriage with a sometimes a traditional view of the family more than a biblical view. And so I want to say what that meant. So this was the infamous lasagna fight between my husband and I. So I really, really believed like loving my husband was making him lasagna from scratch. You know, so I worked all day on this lasagna because this is what Christian women do to love their husbands. And so I worked all day, you know, everything, everything. And then we sat down and we ate it in about two minutes and Mike did not praise me enough. You know, it was this just deep, you don't, do you understand what I did for you? And, um, and, and I realized at that moment, Mike didn't really, my husband didn't actually really care about having a lasagna that was made from scratch. And I was loving an ideal of what I thought the perfect wife was out there rather than actually loving my own husband. And so I think it is really important when the scripture says, submit to your own husband as the Lord. And here's what I want to say. Every complementarian marriage should not look the same. There is not a checkoff list that you made the homemade lasagna and now you're a good wife, you know? And so for me, it was breaking free and saying, really what does scripture say? this means and really looking at what, you know, it's really more important because what I did not display was love, patience, kindness, joyfulness, and (laughs) self-control. You know, what I, what that's, that's being a loving, respectful wife is to bear fruit in my marriage, not to make the perfect lasagna, if that makes sense. So I had to fight against that. Kevin, would you speak to that person who maybe they've become biblically convinced in regard to complementarity? But it's a rub, and they're not really sure uh, what it's going to look like. It's difficult to accept and difficult to live out. How would you encourage that person? Male or female. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think first of all, to be honest with ourselves and with others and with the Lord when things are hard. On the one hand, uh, we don't, we shouldn't wear it as a badge of honor that the Bible says something and we're not sure we like it. That's not the goal. The goal is to enjoy what God gives to us. And at the same time, it, it can be a process with certain doctrines, and this may be one of them. And so, to be honest, Lord, I want to be like David and say, I delight in the law of the Lord and that this is good, this is sweeter than honey. And right now, I'm eating it because your word tells me, and would you change my taste buds for it? I think both men and women, we might think of just women as struggling to accept this, but men can too, for the reasons that Ligon mentioned. Many men will feel that, and they'll be embarrassed to, to mention it. They'll feel like, my wife is so much more spiritual. She knows the Bible better. She goes to all these Bible studies. I, I, you know, you're a big shot at work during the day, and you're scared to pray with your wife at night. You, you need to be a man. And you need to go and talk to your pastor and get some help and, and have someone 
give you some good resources and set some good models and be a man. That's a biblical command. And I think for women who struggle with this to accept this teaching, to realize that, you know, as Melissa said, there will be for any of us in the Christian life, if everything about following Jesus seems, well, this is kind of what I would yeah. be doing already, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then we all, we probably haven't really taken Jesus seriously <laughs> with all the things that he's telling us to do. Hopefully over time, you know, to submit to a godly husband does not feel like cross-bearing, but to lay down our sense of what may initially seem fair or right or good or true or beautiful and commit by faith that you're going to walk down this path that God lays out in Scripture, trusting that as the will leads or perhaps as the mind leads, the affections will follow. We always like the, we like the affections to be out front. Woo, affections, feels good. <laughs> That's, that's how we make arguments online. Mm -hmm. I feel, I emote, therefore I am. Spurgeon said we ought to make very hard arguments using very soft words. The internet was invented to do the opposite. Yeah, that's true. So, your will, your mind may be leading and trust that your affections will follow. Mm. Well, our time is actually up, but I can't bear to not have our last question. So you each get 30 seconds, okay? The, the, the lightning round. Um, each of us have children. You all have both sons and daughters. So in 30 seconds, uh, I'll start with you, Kevin. Uh, what do you hope over the lifetime that you have these nine children in your home? What do you want to communicate to them about these things? I hope they're not always in my home. Yes. <laughs> I'll remember one thing my, my dad would travel. He was in ministry and uh, he would say to us when we'd leave, when he would leave and even when my brother and I, there's my brother, me and then two younger sisters, he would say, now when I'm gone, I uh, want you to be the man of the house. Now, you know, a whole bunch of people would say, what a terribly, horribly chauvinistic thing to say. But I always remember, and it was his way of saying, of course, my mom was taking care of us, weren't taking care of her, but it, it was a way of saying, you're a protector. And you look out for, you, you help your mom with the work now. We probably didn't do a very good job. But, but you're the man of the house. So I will give those little words sometimes to my boys. Now, I'm, I'm going away, and I want you to make sure you, you want to make mom's job easier. You're here. Hmm. And um, to my daughters who have different personalities, and some of them very strong and feisty and fiery, I don't want, uh, I don't want them to feel like they have to change that, but I want them to understand where true beauty comes from, and almost any dad, is, as girls grow up, being beautiful is really important, and we have an opportunity as fathers in particular to help them know what God's sort of beauty looks like. And so, true strength for my boys, mm. true beauty for my That's daughters. Lovely. Melissa, 30 seconds. Um, I would tell both, I'm raising a son and a daughter, be in every part of the Bible all of your life. Um, there are these passages that directly apply to men and women but they will never suffice to make you a biblical man or a biblical woman. 
be a student of all of the word all of your life and that will make your mother very happy. Oh, and your, and your kids, Ligon. Melissa, are just great. I don't, I mean, uh, we, help us. Help me and Trisha. <laughs> Her daughter, who might be here somewhere, she won the like best all around awesomest person award at the school, which was well deserved. And so blessings, you and Mike are, are yeah, God's th blessing through your- That is the effect of grace and <laughs> Jesus yeah. being very kind. All right, Ligon, you'll close us here. Yeah, th those are such good answers, and I'm not sure I can compete with them, Nancy. I, I, I would, both of my children, I think, are headed for marriage. My daughter's engaged, and God willing, will be married this summer. Um, and I, I think I would say to both of them, as they treasure Jesus Christ, as they rest and trust in him alone for their salvation, as he's offered in the gospel, to live with their mates in such a way that their mates say, I am so glad that you are a woman and a godly woman, or I'm so glad that you are a man and a godly man. Uh, make what you are as a man and a woman to be a blessing to your spouse. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.